Ross Whitaker. Um, thank you so very much for, for doing this today. Um, uh, <laughs> so, no problem, I'm happy um, to be here. Um, and yes, thank you so much. So, you were born in Dublin? I was. Is where, that where we begin? That's where we begin. Can we not start but, earlier than that? No, I'm can joking. we start earlier? Uh, yeah, I was born in Dublin quite a while ago. Where in Dublin? Uh, where was I born in Dublin? Um, I just assumed that actually that you were born. Well, in I was, Dublin. yeah, oh, as far as I remember, anyway. And uh, I think I was born. I can't remember because I get mixed up between my siblings. But I think I was born in Mount Carmel, okay. which is uh, on the south side of the city. And uh, and where is home? Home was Shankill. When I was growing up, which is, I suppose, probably the most southern point in Dublin before you hit Wicklow yeah. and Bray. Uh, yeah, so a suburban childhood, running around greens after balls mainly, footballs. And, and, uh, and growing up, um, had you any notion of what you might like to do? No, none. Um, I just liked playing sport. That was pretty much it. Okay. So uh, yeah, and going to like I remember going to see Star Wars when I was a baby. I think I remember it. I think oh, I think I remember running up and down the aisles. I think I don't know how much of it I watched, but I do have a lot of strong memories of going to the cinema as a child. A lot of the time it was at other kids' birthday parties, mm-hmm. or my own birthday parties, or whatever. But there was it was always uh, there. You know, the idea of going to the cinema to see whether it was animated films as a kid or the likes of the Star Wars type films and that kind of thing. So, And they made they made great films like for kids back then when you look at kind of the history, like you've got the Goonies and the Star Wars and yeah. all of those things. They did and of course it was like the dawn of kind of some of those high concept films like Star Wars and Jaws and like for kids or... Yeah, even for quite young kids, like that was quite seismic. I mean, in the seventies, there was a lot of uh, there was a whole Indian. Well, not they weren't actually independent films, but they were. There was kind of a whole wave of uh, independent style films, you know, that were made, and there was a lot of great actors and actresses and stuff like that. But that wouldn't have, like, you know, come into my you know attention space at all it was all like like big cinema fair okay. it wasn't until later that you started discovering more kind of like art house films and documentary and more independent style cinema so then uh, business economics and social studies yeah bss and trinity yeah where did that that was itself to you? Uh, a friend of mine's older sister did it in college and it's had four different titles business, economics, and you could do political science and sociology. And because I hadn't a clue what to do with it, well, at least there's four things. Okay, I might like and one of them. I might like some of them. And business, you know, suggests okay. that maybe someday you might be able to like... Because like, you know, when I was in school, in kind of the early 90s, there was quite... And obviously in the 80s and into the early 90s, it's quite a big recession in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And even though I think... You know, statistically, the recession that we have been going through has been worse. It felt worse then for some reason. And I don't know what that was. You know, I mean, back then they had things like self-aid. I mean, no matter how bad things have gotten now, there hasn't been, you know, a major concert put on, you know, for people in that situation now. I don't know. I don't know what 
there's, there's an atmospheric difference uh, between then and now. Maybe it's just because I'm older. But when I was leaving school, like there were so many people emigrating. I mean, there's a lot of people a few years older than me that, that used to finish school at 15. And it was only around my age that it started getting to the point where everyone pretty much seemed to finish school. And then the thought of getting a job, you're like... Well, I remember when we were in school, somebody came in and said, like, you'd have to learn German. Actually, they were right. But they were saying, you know, there's no jobs in Ireland. Germany is the only, like, economically uh, successful country in Europe. Everyone should be learning German. And, like, that was what was laid out for you. So the, the thought of, like, leaving school and going to college, getting a job seems a little bit exotic almost even though like going to college seemed normal but it's like what are you going to do after that yeah so did you enjoy did, did that course did it did you like it um I liked the aspects of it like I was really interested in the marketing side of things like I think I'm really interested I'm quite a project based person which is what suits me about filmmaking I think but and when we were doing kind of the business course so you could do a project about, like I remember doing a, uh, a big project about the marketing strategy of football teams. And uh, that was interesting to me. And, you know, and, and some of that kind of thinking you start to bring into your producing and so on as well, because you're like, well, if I'm doing this kind of projects, you know, what kind of funders are going to be interested in that? What kind of audiences are going to be interested in it? So my mind was always interested in, audiences I suppose like customers audiences like so in college I like the political science and I like the sociology because that appealed to the side of my mind that's interested in people and, and stories about people but then in the marketing aspect of it it was kind of the part of my mind that's interested in like how people consume things or enjoy things and, and so I think the course actually did appeal to me in that way mm-hmm. the economics I wasn't I mean there's like kind of an economics background in my family but I wasn't interested in it at all really uh, I was much more interested in I suppose the softer elements of it and you did an MA in film studies in UCD um, but did you is work... this stuff all online yeah it is, is it? Yeah, yeah oh my god <laughs> all online um, wow. did you when did film making kind of suggest itself to you as something you wanted to do yeah, well, I think it was kind of off the back of doing that BSS course, I knew that I didn't really want to do anything to do with BSS as a career. I didn't, like, there were people in my classes that were going on to do accounting or a management consultancy or um, financial things. Some people went on to kind of do crossover courses and become solicitors. And it just, like, none of that appealed to me, like, that idea I didn't really want to have a path it sounds like a strange approach to take but I didn't want to know what I was going to be doing in 10 years time I wanted to to do something that would stimulate my mind and um kind of yeah you know kind of appeal to that side of that sense of adventure almost so when I finished that course I did a little bit of traveling and so on and I started then you know after you've done that for a few months you're like well I can't do this forever so started to think about what I would do and I didn't really have a clue and I found that I was going to the cinema a lot while I was thinking about what I should do next and then one day I was like well I'm going to the cinema a lot you know maybe I should explore whether or not it's possible to do anything in this area and how am I going to do that well when you're that age you always think like I'll do a course and that'll tell me 
what to do and it so rarely actually works out like that but um, that's why I decided to try and do film studies and then I got rejected from every course and then I kind of convinced them to let me in TCD by sending them a groveling email or letter actually it was a letter and what other courses were there in? The, there was an MA in, um, or it was some kind of postgrad in film studies. I'm not sure if it was an MA at the time, it certainly is now in Angel Street DIT. And there was certainly something in Dunleary at the time. And there was an MA in film studies in UCD. Those were the three ones that I knew of. A friend of mine had just finished the one in Angel Street. Uh, Daniel O'Hara, who's uh, directs drama and is doing very well at it, and we were he was in BSS with me, and he had told me about it, and I was like, well, that sounds really interesting. So like he was actually quite a big influence on me at the time, even though he hadn't really done anything either. But mm-hmm. it was sort of he had taken that path, and it sounded interesting to me. So I, uh, but then I didn't get into that course. I didn't get into UCD, and I didn't. I was too late for the deadline for Dunleary, I think, and. Um, also, I think you needed a portfolio for Dunleary, which I didn't have. Uh, even though my academic side was fine, you know, um, I hadn't actually done anything. So um, they rejected me. And then I sent a letter saying, you know, what would I have to do to get into this next year? And, you know, obviously I'm still interested in doing this if a place becomes available. And that was kind of my strategic way of showing I was really interested. And then they, then they asked me to, it was really weird. They asked me to come in in the first week I don't think it was until about the third week of the course that they confirmed that I was actually definitely in it, which I, I think was probably just an error in communication okay. rather than okay. administrative things. So, yeah, that was what I ended up doing. And film studies as opposed to film making, was it yeah. more a theoretical kind of, or was it a practical course? It was mostly theoretical, but it had a practical element. Uh, we made, I think over the course of the year, we made four short films. You could only have been involved in two of them because uh, in each of the two semesters, half of the class would do one film, the other half would do the other film, and you would take on certain roles. So uh, I loved that. Uh, I thought that was great. Um, I loved it all, actually. I loved the film studies aspects of it. I loved uh, watching and discussing and attempting to read films and learning about, uh, learning that there was more going on beneath the surface of some of these films that maybe if you'd watched them in a more distracted way in the past you wouldn't have noticed or you wouldn't have understood to the same degree so yeah it all appealed to me but I, I didn't really want to be an academic so I well I, I considered a little bit like doing more film studies beyond that but really what I wanted to do was get into the production side of things but like I don't know if it's different now but certainly then what how do you do that I don't know like I, I, people come I remember even went, went back to UCD a few years later and uh, spoke to the class that were finishing up and you know just tried to explain to people like what you can actually do next having done this course and I think it was even very difficult for people to get their head around what I was trying to tell them even having done it you know and it's very hard for people because uh, unless you go into the camera department or you become like I don't know how many numbers down the ADs go like a fifth AD or a sixth AD or whatever it is like how do you actually break into it and, and eventually I ended up going more towards TV but was it as a director that you you would kind of I didn't know what I was yeah I think I wanted to direct really produce so I was always interested in producing 
Uh, I wasn't really sure. <laughs> Still not sure if I am 100% a director or 100% a producer. I'm not. Like you develop as you go along and you get better at things, but like I'm not a natural visualist. Like, you know, I, like there was a guy in my class in school who used to always be like drawing and painting and he had this, uh, he's gone on to be a director, he's in Australia now. Like when we were kids, you know, he was always fascinated by uh, communicating through pictures because he was really, even as a kid, a fantastic artist. Like that never came naturally to me. So what I found that I was really interested in was screenwriting and at that early stage when I was in college and I suppose what that sort of says is that what fascinates me about filming is the storytelling aspect and like telling a story through structure but also through images and that kind of thing and how you actually tell a very tight and gripping story. And the bulk of your work is in docudramas or in documentary. Documentary, yeah. Um, so was it always documentary over fiction for you? Well, no. Well, first of all, I wanted to do screenwriting, but then I just didn't know how you do that. So um, I wanted to, like, what was the easiest way to make something? And that was to, so I bought a camera and started playing with it. And again... My friend Dan O'Hara had done that kind of a year before me. So I was sort of copying him, you know what I mean? And I could see he was getting little bits of work just shooting things. So I kind of taught myself how to use the camera. And then uh, I moved to, I actually went away for two years. I lived in Toronto. Oh. And uh, when I was there, I volunteered in a community TV channel. And I learned tons about cameras and stuff like that. And also while I was there, I used to go to Hot Docs, the documentary festival, and I went to Toronto Film Festival. I used to volunteer at them. So I'd be there, you know, for the entire thing. And it was through being at those festivals and seeing, being really moved and affected by exceptionally well-made documentaries that I started thinking, okay, well, you can make a documentary. Uh, it may not be great, but with limited resources, you can make a documentary that really... Uh, moves people and you can tell a story in that way and that's when I started veering in that direction okay and why did you come back then from Toronto well my visa was run out ah, all right. okay. uh, and also like it was a really weird couple of years because in the kind of post-college years I could see my friends all like really bonding in their lives you know and doing things together and all that kind of stuff and I was kind of isolated over in Toronto even though I made lots of new friends there but um, it seemed natural that my life should be here. Now, loads of those friends now live elsewhere, so obviously they're avoiding <laughs> me. But uh, uh, no, it just felt like you know my life was really here uh, in the long run. Um. So, does that kind of time period take you up to making Blind Man Walking? Is that your first kind of... No, before that, like, I suppose this probably isn't online, but um, I made a half-hour documentary in... So, in 2005, in Galway, I had my first ever festival screening of a short documentary called God Blows My Mind. And uh, so that was 10 years ago this month. Uh, and it's funny... Around the same date, around the 10th anniversary, I've just moved house, I found the original 
uh, little identity card that you got your um, whatever you call those things and, uh, and was that hugely exciting to have you first? it was huge yeah. like it was you know when I made when I considered making a film my only ambition was because I loved film festivals my only ambition is like if I can make one film and get into one festival that would be like my ambition that would be enough for me um, and so having that screening was really exciting and you know we didn't have enough money to grade the film or even to properly mix it or anything like that and I can't remember if it was 9am or 10am on a Sunday morning because the documentary slot for shorts and goalie isn't a very uh, I don't know sociable slot because <laughs> most people are out on Saturday night and like a lot of the time there isn't a huge amount of people at those screenings maybe I don't know 40 people or something like that but the thrill was massive so yeah that was 10 years ago and then and it went down really well and then it was shown in Stranger Than Fiction the documentary festival by Gronya Humphreys who received the film really like we contacted her say like you know, is the film in or not? And she's like, oh, I really like this film. You guys are definitely in, like, congratulations. So we had another one and that was packed and it went down really well. What was it about? Well, uh, you know, what we were, a friend of mine, Liam Nolan, who I went on to work with a bit uh, over the course of about a year and a half, uh, he had already made one short documentary as part of his DIT course and it had been in Galway the year before and we'd become friends in the meantime and I'd sort of said to him, you know, if we work together, we can make a bit of stuff. And really with a two-man team or, you know, two-person team, you can do a lot because you need one person to record camera and one person to, to use a microphone. And then you've got sound and vision, you know what I mean? And then you need someone else to edit it at some stage. Um, but we were looking for an unfolding story that we could get access to. And Liam was walking home one day after one of these numerous conversations we had over cups of tea and said I bumped into these American Christians on a con street like kids like 18 19 trying to kind of like spread the word on a con street to people and people just don't know how to respond to them and he'd bumped into them and he started chatting to them and we ended up going for a cup of coffee with them and I said you know maybe this is it maybe this is the unfolding story they were over for in Ireland for three months at this point they'd already been there for a month uh, it probably took us two more weeks to get the access to be allowed to film them, but then they give us complete access. And we followed them around for about five or six weeks until the day they went back and made a documentary about their kind of their quest and how they were received and kind of really about the culture clash between these like young, enthusiastic evangelicals. And a lot of time they were speaking to people that were down and out, you know what I mean? And, and trying to help those people and, and their lives up to then had been so different that it was a really fascinating thing to cover observationally, which is, I suppose, my first love is that kind of observational documentary. And um, we had a great time making it. We had a great time editing it. And then it was about 25 minutes long and we didn't even know how to get it out there. So we showed in two festivals and then that we kind of left it. We didn't, I think we entered Sundance. You know, we didn't enter any other festival. You know, it didn't get into Sundance. Okay, maybe it mustn't be good enough, you know. So we did that and, and that was kind of it for that. So that was 2005. And then Liam and I went on to make a film called Saviors in 2007, which was a feature-length documentary. And that was in Galway in 2007. 
And I've heard a lot of people say like that the jump between making or or rather that the effort that you put into making a short, you may as well make a feature. Was that was it a massive jump or Yeah, well I mean the funny thing about it was when we were shooting God Bless Mind, it actually overlapped with the start of us shooting the feature. So we're actually kinda by the time is that right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, so start at the end of doing God Bless Mind overlapped with Saviour. So we so when we started making the feature, we didn't even know. We just started filming. It was a film set in a boxing club. Uh, and we followed them for, I think it was a year and a half in the end. But um, that is and isn't true. I mean, it's different for different people. Like, I find... I almost find it easier to tell a story over a longer time, over more minutes, because I'm really into structure and like how you tell a story over an arc. And like, I'm not an expert in it, but I'm trying my best, you know what I mean? So like, I'm quite comfortable telling a story over an hour or over 80 minutes. Um, I think telling a story in 10 minutes is a different skill. So I think for different people it works differently, but. I think people who are interested in making features should probably try and get to features as quickly as they can because there's a lot to learn about telling a story over 80 minutes. And if you make 20 shorts, I think you're probably just holding the same skill, you know, in some ways over and over again. So I think us sort of going straight to a feature, and that was in 2007, so that's eight years ago, certainly gave me a lot of confidence in terms of telling those longer stories. And in terms of, so when you make a, f- a fiction film, yeah, you start with the script, right, and that gives you a structure and an arc, and almost you know what you're doing. But with yeah. a documentary, you don't have that. No. So. Well, it depends on the type of documentary. I mean, some if you're telling a story that happened in the past, then you can have a script almost and an arc and everything like that. Like if you're telling a story that happened 20 years ago and you have all the information, then you can know the structure in advance. But if you're telling something observational that's happening, unfolding in front of your eyes, then you don't know. Um, and it's funny, a drama director that I know, we were out one night and she said, how do you do it? Like, do you just film everything? And then in the edit, you put a structure on it. And it's actually for us, or for me, not like that at all. You know, like I'm constantly like reimagining the story like every day I film. So like, you know, filming someone's story and then if something happens to them, my mind now gets to the point where it's like considering the options of what they might do next, you know? So to make up an example, uh, you know, a mother confronts her son about his drug use. You film that, but then you think, okay, well, what could happen next? You know, so you're, you're already thinking, I need to make sure I'm there when the next scene happens. What's the next scene going to be? You know, is probably you know something else very big or tumultuous is going to happen pretty soon after that like the son might leave home or you know what I mean or the mother might try and get someone to bring get you know bring someone in to help her son or whatever it might be so you can't be with your characters 24 hours a day so you have to try and predict to some extent how the narrative is going to unfold and what's going to be the next big step in their story so you are 
constantly creating that structure in your mind as you go along and constantly trying to take in all the information that's in front of you and and think about where it might go next and when you're filming people like that you know when you're kind of just dropping into their lives is there a you know practically how does it work do you is there a cut-off point or do you start filming at eight o'clock and finish at 11 or no uh, um, i think that's part of what i'm saying as well as that you start because like in any 10-hour day there's going to be 90 percent of it is going to be stuff that you're never going to use you know so i think the skill comes in predicting communicating and, and understanding what's going on with people and yes a lot of that happens when you're not filming so it could be the conversation you're having you're like what are you up to in the next few days and what's going on and you get a sense you're like oh that's gonna create something interesting like okay. I have a character we're doing a thing in in the west of ireland at the moment and one of my characters like told me there and i hope it hasn't happened yet because the last three weeks i've been out of commission uh with having a baby but um one of my characters has decided to like move out of a house and move into a yurt and i'm like okay well that's going to be interesting <laughs> you know what i mean so you're like I'm going to film some of the build up to that and, and okay. how then like, you know, the first couple of days of living in a year, that's going to lead to some practical problems. You know, you can imagine that. So you're like, okay, well, I'll try and be there a lot around then, but I might not film with him for a week or two before that, because I know that's the next big step in the story that I'm telling about how he's simplifying his life, say, you know, so it's a little bit like that. Yeah. Okay. So it's about kind of a balance, but then having a sense of what's significant. Yeah. And... It is, and you know, you see sometimes things where they've spent a lot of time with people, but they haven't. It's like they didn't have the camera rolling when the dramatic thing happened, but they got the other ninety percent. You know what yeah. I mean? It's trying to make sure you're there for, and you're filming for the important ten percent. Um. So. Saviors. And then, I don't mean to rush to it, but okay. is Blind Man Walking, was that kind of the the biggest thing you did until well, that Well, at point? the time, Saviors was the biggest thing because it was released in theatres and uh, like it went down really well and that was 2008 and then... And how did that project come about? Because you've done a lot of sports, is, would you say yeah. you've got a... I'm interested in sport. I'm trying to get away from doing too much sports, but... Uh, it was with Saviors it was like what environment can you film in that will have interesting characters and potential moments of drama so a boxing club in an inner city part of Dublin is probably going to have some interesting characters that have a lot at stake in their lives and that's what you're looking for is like people that have things at stake you know if when people say to me oh I have an idea for a documentary what do you think of this I'll be like well is there anything at stake nothing at stake then there may not be anything that's going to happen when you're filming or there's, there's no natural uh, storyline for you to intersect for you to, for your camera to intersect with the story but um so we did we found we set up liam knew of an inner city boxing club that i'd done liam that i'd done goblo's mind with and he had done a bit of radio stuff there and then we asked them would they mind if we filmed there and they were open to it and then we just sort of and what was great about that was like it was these train like three nights a week and then on Sundays so we would go three nights a week and then go on Sundays and we could fit that into our lives and then from the boxing club we would follow stories so we would figure out what 
what was going on in the characters' lives. Yeah, and there's been so many, like boxing as a sport, there are yeah. so many like fiction feature films about boxing yeah. too. It is kind of a... Yeah, it's a, it's, I always wonder when gonna, people are just going to stop making boxing films. Like this one in the cinema at the moment. But like you just wonder like how, at some point the boxing well is surely going to run dry. But I think if it is it is it is it kind of the lone the lonesomeness of the boxer? I don't know that you like, I think it's if, like I think it's I think it's the people who are boxers tend to have a lot at stake. Okay. So uh, most boxing clubs tend to be in areas that are like socially deprived or maybe not always socially deprived let's say not like in the most successful economic areas and therefore like characters that are there and boxing is like a monastic activity you know you live like a monk so um you may be in an environment like in Dublin's inner city north inner city where there are a lot of social problems and you the boxer are the one person in your area that doesn't drink doesn't smoke trains you know five times a week if not more and has to maintain their weight at a certain level so that's a big ask for someone in a world of temptation so that's interesting um i i uh, and now you've done it you've, you've just done has it been released you've just done a feature by colin cooper oh no we did a short documentary on colin cooper yeah, it was, that was uh, on, it was just for YouTube. Okay. Yeah, and it's been on there. Um, God, it's very noisy here, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Film Base is being renovated, uh, I need to say this. Let's see, um. oh yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, we did a short doc on Colm, the Gooch Cooper, just for online. Uh, and he is? He's the Kerry footballer, yeah. genius Kerry footballer. So that, he was injured and that was about his comeback from injury. It was kind of a project we were hired to do, which, but it was great fun. He's a great uh, guy, and it was interesting. Um, but yes, yeah, so we did that. Then yes, yeah, so Saviors, and then Blind Man Walking that you mentioned, we did that. Um, that I'm, was great. Because I'm I'm interested in kind of in in terms of sports. A friend of mine yeah. said recently that there have been that he knew of, there have been no real documentaries done on the GAA or on, right. you know, the likes of the Kilkenny hurling team or Henry Shafflin. Well, there have actually been okay. documentaries on GAA. There have been tons of documentaries on, on the GAA. Oh, okay. But there's, <laughs> but there's only been one that I know of that has been theatric, theatrically released, and that was A Year Till Sunday, which I think was like around 2000 or something like that. And uh, it was very inspiring documentary because I think it's Pat Comer and he was involved in the Galway f- football team. God, it's so long since I've seen it. Okay. And he had been on the panel, so he'd been actually in the dressing room. So it was a true kind of behind the scenes documentary. And it really stood out as something special, amazing documentary. But um, the problem with trying to film GAA is access because it's... Um, I mean, I, it's funny, someone said to me recently, like, quite a big UK producer is interested, like, I heard through the grapevine in doing, like, a big, like, massive budget, behind-the-scenes GAA documentary. And I said, someone mentioned me, I was like, everyone wants to do that documentary. You know, it's not like that's an original idea. Like, everyone would love to do, you know, embedded with Dickel Kenny and Tipperary and Cork 
hurling teams for a season and you see the highs and lows and intercut them and create this really astonishing film but good luck to you trying to get into those dressing rooms really? you know it's... but there's been a couple like there's a really good one done on Dublin football team a few years ago that was they got a bit of access um, there's a great Croke Park documentary which is the year that they did they were embedded for the day of the final all following all the different elements of Croke Park so yeah there have been some GA ones <laughs> okay sorry I'm going to have to go back and tell them that yeah it's okay um, uh, and then the other kind of theme that seems to run through your work a bit is uh, rural um, yeah the loss of rural or the erosion of rural traditions and life and you've done yeah it's home. a rich vein yeah absolutely um, yeah we did the bye bye now we did a phone box documentary god like that was astonishing how that film did you know because it ended up like winning awards at all these festivals around the world and you're like why is anyone interested in Irish phone boxes or why is this touching people and I think it's all about communication and and you know what why did people use the phones you know it was always called loved ones or and that kind of thing so it really touched a nerve with people and then a company started making replica phone boxes after seeing the film, which was pretty mad. So in some way, we helped to preserve the phone boxes, if not the originals, then Cause I can't, the replicas. Because I can't find them anymore. You know, they're not, the, yeah, there's very few. old school. There are some, um, but n- not that many. There's one in Chapel, is it actually, which is quite nice. And there's a, down the country, you see more of them, but like they're not really used as phones mm-hmm. anymore. They're, a lot of cases, uh, villages have held on to them because they thought they were a nice piece of the furniture of the town you know what I mean and I think that's true you know if you walk down a village main street and there's nothing there or there's a you know nicely coloured and maintained old-fashioned phone box it just it's like people say like a horse makes a field yeah more pretty yeah, yeah. well a phone box makes yeah. a village more pretty yeah. you know um and how did you happen upon that story uh well 18 that I work with uh from time to time uh, she we were working in a production company together and she came into the office one day and we were just chatting she said you know have you seen that story about all these phone boxes going away and I don't think she wasn't really saying it and like we should do something on it she, it was just like a talking point and we were talking about it and that kind of thing and then uh, I told her a story my mum has a funny story about a phone box and then she came back with a story that her mum had about a phone box and somebody else told a story and and then I went home that night and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, if everyone in the office had a story about phone boxes, like what kind of stories must be out there around the country, you know? And I think it was like two weeks until the deadline of the Irish Film Board Reality Bites scheme, which was where they would fund short documentaries. And I rang 18 or we met, I don't know, I can't remember. And I said, how would you feel about it if like we wrote up a treatment and threw it into the thing and then we got shortlisted but we were both away and we couldn't go to the interview and we had to wait a whole other year for the next time it came around and then we were shortlisted again and we went in into the room and they said so we've been waiting a year to hear this pitch (laughs) and we were like oh wow no pressure but uh yes we did that and then you know we just loved making that so much it was just so fascinating and such a great feeling to meet people and talk about something that they cared about and to celebrate something that everyone was just walking by but suddenly did almost change perceptions about it 
that it's almost like we've been trying to recreate that feeling ever since. So <laughs> we made another film about uh, turf cutting, mm-hmm. uh, and we re- that was. We, I mean, stylistically, they're very different. Like we're trying to, you know, try and move and change and do different things each time you make a film. But uh, I suppose thematically, they have some similar themes. And then we're actually got another couple of ones that we're looking at that are in the same vein as those, you know. And I think we just love doing that, you know. It's, but it's also, you know, like we're quite dedicated to doing it well or to do or to doing it with. Uh, to bring as much as we can to it because it, it's easy to go out and interview a load of people and throw a few shots on top of it like too often you know I see student documentaries or inexperienced people's documentaries and they're simply people just talking and some shots thrown on top of it and that's a documentary and, and it's easy to do that but it's more difficult to do something that sort of resembles that, but somehow is elevated and the storytelling really grabs you and that there's there's um, a story being told by images as well as words. You know, a lot of people think documentary is, you know, stories being told with words, but the more you can tell the story with images, uh, the stronger it uh, impacts people. So, yeah, it's an area we're really interested in, but I think we're also trying to, evolve how we tell those stories with each one you know and do something different but it's I mean there are whole aspects of rural life that are our traditional life that, um, that we are losing with those films I think we also feel like you're without getting too uh, self-impressed like you do feel like you're documenting something mm, yeah, you know yeah. and like a, there are a lot of documentaries that are being made that um, aren't essentially aren't documenting something that is essential hopefully to remember and you know if anyone wants to go back and find out about film boxes in a hundred years time hopefully they'll be able to watch our film yeah. I hope so you know maybe no one will want to know that's fine too but like you feel like you're capturing something and that is you're, it's a true documentation of it you know and, and that you're providing something to the archive of the country almost you know and like that that feels good you know it feels good to I mean and that's certainly part of our motivation and even more so with the turf cutting you know we really like we shot all the turf cutting stuff it's you know for people who haven't seen it it's just following a kind of band of men older men who are cutting turf by hand in uh, in their locality and it's that idea of, of all the village basically comes to help and then they'll all move on to the next one and that kind of thing but you know we shot all that in 4k uh, on red camera and like the quality of the footage that we have is incredible really so you know I feel like that's the kind of preservation that we've done with that because I don't know if people will be doing that like there's not many people doing it now or or if there will even be like a semblance of it in, in 10 years time yeah so then then the Mark Pollock, you were in college with Mark Pollock. Yeah, it? Mark, well, he was a year behind me actually, but we knew each other quite well. Uh, and so we've ended up making, I suppose, two main documentaries together. We've done a couple of smaller ones as well, but uh, one was Blind Man Walking, which was where it was a story of him 
on the 10th anniversary of losing his sight he's a blind athlete he raced in a team to the south pole and he was the only blind it was the first race done in 100 years and he was the only blind person in it thus becoming the first blind person in history to race to the south pole uh, he is if not the first heir, I think that maybe there'd only ever been like one blind person even to the South Pole before him uh, in any way, shape or form. But, you know, he, he walked in there and um, I, Mark and I had been friends for years. And when I knew him first, he could see, you know. And so, like, I'd always thought when I first decided to make documentaries, like doing something with Mark was always on my list. You know what I mean? Like, because I just thought... The idea of losing your sight is something that probably crosses everyone's mind, everyone's mind at some stage in their life. When you become aware of the fact that there are blind people, you think, well, what would it be like? And what would it be like if I lost my sight? So I thought, like, that's a kernel of something. It's not enough for a documentary, really, because, you know, that's just a thought. But I always thought with Mark, you know, if, if we could find the right thing that we should do a documentary, and I wanted to do it in a certain way. And, and um, so... He told me he was going to be racing to the South Pole and it was probably, I think, about nine or ten months before he was going and, you know, I was trying to raise funding for it and I suppose even, it's not that long ago, but I've learned a lot about how you raise finance even in the meantime. Uh, so we never really got a budget together for it, but we still, I still followed it off my own bat and um, eventually we made a documentary which showed on a one-off screening the IFI and then it was broadcast on RT. And then... Subsequent to that, uh, when we were in the edit, Mark then had a terrible fall from a window and broke his back. So now he was going to be paralyzed and in a wheelchair as well. And at that point, I was like, I'm not filming any of this. This is just too much um, and it doesn't need to be documented. And also, I felt like Mark and I spent a lot of time together filming and that maybe it was better if we just went back to being friends you know it's a different type of relationship when you're filming with someone all the time and even though it works quite well for us because we we have a lot of fun together um i suppose i was also interested in exploring other film ideas and i knew that if i followed mark for a story about his paralysis that it would be quite a long undertaking and it proved to be four years from his accident to uh, the last bit of filming with him so it did end up being a long project but that ended up becoming a documentary called Unbreakable that we released last year in October. And um, I think that's the last bit of filming I'm going to be doing with Mark for now. Um, and the, uh, the challenge is the wrong word, but when you're filming somebody who is that vulnerable, like, is there a, a privacy line that you're conscious of not crossing or... Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, I suppose, it's hard to explain and it's it's a good question because I do think there are lines, you know, and, and I think that TV sometimes crosses a lot of lines that shouldn't cross in the name of sensationalism and viewing figures and things like that. That's just my opinion. Um, it feels like every reality program wants someone to cry and you think to yourself, you know is that necessary and but for me I suppose if you're already thinking about that then you're already on the right road to getting it right you know because I think you're in you have to kind of follow your instincts and you have to it's you know it's an interesting one because people have asked me in some of the Q&A's like you know 
could you have shown it being even harder than it seems when you watch the film? You know, because it does. I hope that people get a sense of how hard it was for Mark and Simon going through this. But, you know, a couple of people who um, had a paralyzed person in their family, you know, said to me, it's even harder than you showed. Could you have shown that? You know, and um, I had some restrictions in, in when I could film, as it turned out, access wise with hospitals and that kind of thing. But I tried to get the balance right of, of showing a story that was um, showed how hard it was, but also reflected the positive attitude that Mark and Simon have at times, you know. Um, but I also have like another theory about emotion, you know, and I have worked on television programs where, you know, people are hoping to see someone cry because that'll create emotion. But I think there's, as a filmmaker making a drama or documentary, I wonder how do you create emotion? Um, are there different ways? And one of the ways I think the, the shortcut is you watch people being emotional. So when you see someone cry, if you're an empathetic person, you feel sad, you know? But a stronger or deeper emotion is to go on a, some kind of path with a character and through what happens to them or through their own actions, uh, without ever even, they could be the most stoic person in the world, but they, that path could still affect you emotionally. And I think that that's a bigger aspiration to have is if you're trying to create emotion in your film is, is to do it through storytelling rather than just by showing something emotional, you know? And I think that there is a distinction and in the making of Unbreakable, that was something that I was thinking about a lot, particularly in the editors, like, you know, there's a moment in the film, which funnily enough is quite um, a positive moment for Mark and Simon. They're, he's learning how to use a new wheelchair. And the scene ended up being quite short because we had to keep cutting the film down and so on. But like I, and there's a moment, he's just tried the wheelchair and they're going up and down this curb over and over again. And then they decide to go back to the hospital. So they're walking down a path and Mark, Simon says, I'll go ahead and you just follow my voice with the wheelchair. So she's going ahead of him and because she's trying to look forwards and behind her, she, she's kind of twirling as she walks away from him because she's looking forward to make sure she's not going to crash in, into anything and looking back to make sure he's there. And it's kind of almost like a dance, you know. And then Mark is trying to follow her only by hearing her voice. And like... I almost can't watch that scene without bawling because even though there's nothing emotional happening within the scene itself, no one is crying or anything like that. If you've gone on this journey, for want of a better word, with them, you'll know that uh, that small triumph is exactly that compared to what else has happened in their lives. And also you'll recognize that this is going to be their life from now on, that this kind of level of interaction is what is going to drive the life with trying to figure out how to go up a curb. I mean, how poignant is that, you know? So like, to me, that's an amazingly emotional scene without anything emotional happening in it. So sorry, that's a very long and windy no, way of explaining, no, 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 but no, no, those are two different things, you know? Yeah. So like something entirely, uh, Strangers and Fiction. Yeah. Did you take over from Grania Humphreys with that? No, Grania did it. I don't know how Grony, Grony must have done it over three or four years. And then, so yeah, I felt like full circle going on to program it. But after her, um, 
James Kelly did it, and then another guy called Niall, a Scottish fellow whose surname I forget, very nice guy from Scotland, and then me, I think. So I was the fourth person to do it, and I did it for three years. And then I'm not sure how they're doing it this year, but last year was my last year doing it. Okay. Um, so yeah, I did it for three years. And in terms of, of the work involved in that and curating a programme, do you yeah. just watch a huge amount of documentaries? Yeah, you do watch a lot. I mean, you how many you watch depends on how many you liked the first time you watched them, you know, because the programme, uh, we didn't take entries in the international categories. So it, because it's a small festival and there isn't, uh, like it was a part-time job for me, so there's only so many hours I can spend watching films while still keeping my head above water financially. Um, what we would do is we would look at um, lots of other festivals and what their programmes were. So starting at the beginning of the year, you have... Sundance and Slamdance and then you have Berlin and then you have Tribeca and Hot Docs and you're kind of looking at all these programs and I mean between them South by Southwest as well and uh, you might have 250 document feature line documentaries across just those six or seven festivals uh, that are world premiering at those festivals so you look through those programs and you start requesting you get in touch with those producers and you request those films um, there are certain films that you recognise, uh, even just by reading about them, that they don't necessarily suit the tone of the festival that you have or you're trying to create. Um, and what is the, what was the tone, or was that did that vary? Yeah, well, it was two things I suppose that you're trying to do. Well, one, the film is called Stranger Than Fiction. Or, sorry, the festival is called Stranger Than Fiction. So that suggests a certain type of film. You know, a film that is surprising you know if the truth is stranger than fiction then well that's a surprising idea you know so looking films that are a little bit surprising maybe a little bit unusual uh i wouldn't really be that interested in like straight music documentary or like a straight um biopic type documentary um so you're looking for things a little bit on the edge maybe and but then the second thing you're trying to do is over the course of say you might have 15 features over the weekend only over the course of those 15 features you do want to have variety you know you do want to say appeal to you know viewer a that likes a certain type of thing who would never watch the same thing as viewer b who would never watch the same thing as viewer c and if they're going to come to one film each you don't want 10 films the same because then viewer b won't come you know what i mean so you're trying to i suppose honor those two ideas and like you might be looking at um so you might you want to make sure probably you have one music documentary but then you're looking for a certain type of music documentary and that might play really well on a Saturday night uh, you're, I quite like films that have a sense of humour and so on so I'd always be trying to put in a couple of films like that and sometimes you know the opening night film is a certain type of film you know an opening night film is the kind of film you want people to in my mind walk out and, and start talking about the festival you know I went to see this film last night it was shocking hilarious fascinating you know, and they're going to have this all weekend. They're going to have these kinds of films. So uh, you start learning after the first year that different types of films suit different types of slots. You know, what makes someone go to film after working on Friday? And like as a, as a nation of cinema goers, um, is there a big audience for documentaries? 
Well, it's a very interesting question. <laughs> there is Irish people, despite what some people think, are great at going to things if they, well, one, they have to hear about it, and two, it has to appeal to them. But I don't think Irish people, in my, to my mind, are um, cynical about certain things. Like people say Irish people won't go see Irish films. I just don't agree with it. I think they're completely wrong. Uh, and I think that's been proven many times. Uh, that like film like The Guard was huge. One of the biggest films of the year, probably one of the top 20 films of the Irish box office ever. It could be completely wrong about that, but maybe at least it was at the time. Um, so, and the other thing I'd say about it is that Irish people are great at going to festivals. So if you, so something like Stranger in Fiction, in the last two, like my first year and then the second two years, first year was kind of a learning experience and then tried to really grow it. The last two years were like really, really successful. Like the viewing figures were great. They were beyond our targets or our hopes each time. Uh, so I think if you package something well as a festival, you put it at the, on at the right time, you program it in the right way um, and you're good at your marketing, people will go and see it. The other thing, but I don't think that people go, I am a documentary goer. I think there's a very small group of people that will go and see every documentary that comes out at the cinema. You know, they will go to films that they think they want to see. Now, that could be a film about Nick Cave this week and it could be Batman next week. I think that I wouldn't say we're like necessarily a nation of documentary goers. I think we like to go and see good stuff. Seeing as many films as you do, are we quite limited in in what we receive as a I mean in terms of the films that get to Ireland? Well, look, a... I mean, how many features are made every year? Ten thousand, like ten thousand. Like we're for the size of the country, we are blessed to have the IFI and the Lighthouse, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent the Screen Cinema World will show some art house and indie cinema. Uh, there's a new cinema opening in Galway. Cork is probably a little bit under served at the moment but I imagine that will change at some stage like I think for the size of our country we're like amazingly uh, we have amazing options and the launch of the kind of the dawn of digital cinema as well has allowed it used to be like, like a film which have four times a day for the week if you had two screens that essentially made you meant you had like two or three films a week now you've got cinemas uh, splitting up their program a lot more so they might have one film and it shows once a day and that means you can put four films on a day and you can offer a lot more choice. So, yeah, I, no, I think we have an awful lot of options. And that has caused a different problem. And that's caused a marketing problem. That's caused a time problem. Like, I don't know. I feel like there was like two or three documentaries released last week. You know, I try and go and see almost all the documentaries and almost all the Irish films for a start, you know. And like now we've got too many choices, it's almost too many well, that's a terrible thing to say. There are so many good films that it's hard to get to the ball. Okay. Um, and of that then, kind of, and generally, not just kind of in relation to Stranger and Fiction, but like films, documentaries that you've seen, that you've loved. Yeah. Are there particular ones that stayed with you? Yeah, loads of them, you know. It's a combination of there being loads of them and me having a terrible memory probably <laughs> won't help this. But um, I think 20,000 Days on Earth. Uh, the Nick Cave film last year was just brilliant, you know, really, really brilliant. Um, 
and I think it sh- it showed to me uh, a route for filmmakers to take in a way not to copy that film in any way shape or form but to have a very strong vision of of how you're going to tell a story and like I think with I don't know if you've seen that film but you know they map it out as kind of like a day in the life of Nick Cave but it's like you know in that particular day which wasn't filmed in a day (laughs) you know Nick Cave is giving Kylie Minogue a lift somewhere in his car and she's in the back seat and he's in the front and they're having a conversation you know they're talking about their lives you know and how they intersected with each other and it's a great way of learning something about Nick Cave and her and their relationship and you think well you know that didn't just happen obviously like a lot of thought and planning and persuasion went into making that happen but they went into it with a very very strong vision of what it's going to be and I think me and, and a lot of documentary makers could learn from that about approach particularly to a story like Nick Cave's where you know you're dealing with all a lot of stuff that's happened you know it's not an unfolding story uh, it's easy to just do a straight chronological or whatever version of a story but you know what as if you want to be uh, an artist or uh, if you want to be a creative filmmaker what are you know what is your vision for it and I think that really stood out as one of the best films of the year last year I'm so sad now about his son. I know, unbelievable. Yeah, Particularly, like, having watched that film, like, it just really... It was such um, I think it was just, like, you felt such an emotional connection to him watching that film, and then it felt like this terrible thing happens to him, and then it feels all the more upsetting because you sort of got to know him during that amazing film. Um... Film Ireland magazine then and commissioning editor for that. Yeah. How did that come about? Somebody rang me. <laughs> <laughs> now, they did a really interesting thing in Film Ireland for a couple of years, maybe three years, where they had guest editors. Um, I remember Damien O'Donnell did a really good one and well, there's loads of really good ones, you know, and um, I would have always got Film Ireland, I think. Mark O'Halloran did one as well, I think, and... Yeah, he did like the sex issue, I think, which was interesting. And it was a great way of seeing, I suppose, how uh, the magazine could be influenced by different voices. And after doing that for a few years, then they decided, you know, we've kind of probably used up all our favours and all the people that will do it for us and we should try and find someone who will do it um, on a more long-term basis. And and I think when I had done it, we had got on really, really well. And it had done really well, so um, they probably asked a few different people, and I was amongst them. And I said that I was interested in doing it, so I did it for a couple of years. So um, that's how that came about, yeah. And were you, because that has since folded, yeah. Um, were you, <laughs> was I responsible? No, that's not what I was gonna say at all. Were you working on it while that happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any great insights into that. See, as as a commissioning editor, you're kind of like part-time. So there's a, there was an internal staff on Film Ireland that were in there sort of every week of the year. And then I would sort of probably commit about eight weeks a year to it, which would be like, I suppose, like a week of planning and commissioning. And then later when all the stuff came in, a week of like working with uh, Neve Creeley, who was the kind of um, sort of, you know, hands-on editor in terms of getting everything ready and, and uh, helping get the pages all set up and so on. So that that would probably be like I tried to keep it to about like eight to ten weeks actual commitment during the year. So I wasn't here internally. So, but 
like it's funny you know in the time that I was doing it um, it was during the recession you know but it was, our advertising actually stayed pretty constant throughout it and it was kind mm-hmm. of a shame to see it go but um, as everything is squeezed during a recession so too is arts funding and maybe more so and, and uh, the Arts Council was one of the funders of Film Ireland and uh, as well as Filmbase and I think as things became tighter uh, I don't think Filmbase could keep the magazine going. And just in terms of funding and and all of that uh, is it the challenges of getting that is it is it harder now is it easier has it become easier for you the longer you've been working? Yeah it gets like easier without ever being easy I mean it gets a and it's not even that it gets easier to get the money you just learn more about how it works you know and and you get to know people you know like you get to know the commissioning editors and like I suppose it gets easier for people to take your ideas seriously and to understand that you because like one of the like it's it's hard to for people to understand who who've never had any commission but like I suppose one of the biggest fears of any commissioning editor whether it's in a broadcaster like RT or in the film board is completion like will this person actually deliver on what they're saying they're going to do they might think this person has lots of potential and so on but if I've never seen a finished work of yours how can I know that my money will be well spent you know and I think as you do more projects and you deliver them then that element goes okay so now people know okay well I know he'll deliver it now do I think it's good enough do I think it's going to be executed well enough is the idea if you have the idea and then you've got the execution the execution going to be interesting enough will anyone want to see this because you know at the very least the most art house film in the world should have you know one viewer or or you know you'd hope more than that but like you need you know you're talking about a lot of money in some cases and certainly for tv you need to try and get you know needs to be watched by an audience at home and and for film people have to part with their money so for a commissioning editor it's it's always a big call to give anyone any money so it gets easier in that you learn more but the challenge is still there to and the comp and it's very very competitive you know so not only is this a good idea and will be well executed but i've got 15 of these on my desk you know we can give money to three of them which three is it going to be you know so in terms then kind of of making a pitch like if you're just starting out and they don't yeah. know you what what advice would you give to somebody who's in that process and yeah. making your work I think um, it's very very tough but I think uh, it's funny you know I'm watching this TV show at the moment called The Pitch it's on Sky Atlantic and I think it's at like 2am in the morning and because I've been doing a lot of late nights with our newborn child recently I've come across a lot of different programs that I haven't seen before <laughs> anyway I saw this thing called The Pitch and I was fascinated by it's when two advertising companies pitch for a piece of business with like a huge corporation in America and in the few episodes I've seen in many cases it isn't the best idea that wins in many cases it's the most comprehensively presented idea so the people whose materials are really really strong so if you're going in with a short drama you know uh, is your script is that really as good as your script can be you know do you have any accompanying visuals you know can you get someone to help you do a you know a couple of you know, like mini placard postery type things that show 
images of certain scenes that reflect how you're visually going to make this film. You know, do you have examples from other films? And that can be difficult sometimes because you don't want to ever say, well, we're just copying this, which you're not. But sometimes you can get, give that impression, even if you aren't. But it's, it's really to aspire to answer all of the questions that the, the commissioner's mind is going to ask. And just knowing that your idea is great yourself or feeling that way or feeling that you can execute it yourself isn't going to be enough. Like your job is not to be brilliant if you are, and I'm sure people listening to this who are hoping to make films in many cases are, it's to communicate that to someone else. So a pitch is very different to the making of a film. It's about a type of communication and the more comprehensively you can communicate that, the more chance people are going to trust you to do it. Um, I just want to jump back to yeah, no Ali, hmm. the, the documentary you made about um, Ali coming to Ireland. Where did you get that footage? <laughs> Which footage? <laughs> the footage of, of him here. Well, but, I was uh, working on RT Sport for the World Cup and I'd had this idea for years. When I, uh, so when we were kings, I think it was 95. So, uh, yeah, maybe around 1996, it's probably about 20, almost 20 years old now. And it was one of the films that really influenced me to want to make documentaries. And it was about Muhammad Ali fighting in Zaire in uh, the 70s. About 20 years ago. Yeah, it's, maybe it's 18, it might be like 97, but it's in, in that bracket anyway. He'd fought in Zaire in, I think, 73. And um, so... I uh, maybe it was 98 I might be the 25th anniversary of it so anyway I'd after that I remember going and looking up in a book because uh, there wasn't that much internet at the time uh, which is amazing to think but you know did he ever fight in Ireland and, and seeing that he did and thinking like I wonder if there's a story around that and you know saying well one day I'm going to find out about that but um, then years later I had pitched it and I got turned down and then I was in RT uh, for the World Cup and, you know, we kind of had access to some of the archives and so on and so forth. And just uh, in a quiet moment, I asked one of the people in the archive, would you mind if I had a little look if there's any Ali stuff? And they helped me and and I came across, uh, amongst other things, which there was some great stuff, which people knew about. There was also a tape there, which is uh, called Muhammad um, Ali Offcuts. So it was all the, the bits of film that hadn't been used for any of their reports or whatever at the time. And that was about half an hour long. And it was just wall to wall, really good Muhammad Ali stuff and training and all that kind of thing. So it was all in the RT archive. Now, there was little bits in the film archive as well, because um, Louis Marcus had done like a little uh, ad, a little commercial with him when he was over. And this was footage of that. And then the fight itself was owned by uh, an American company. And after a lot of communicating and a bit of help from a friend of mine in boxing circles, we managed to get 90 seconds of the actual fight as well. Wow, yeah. okay. Um, so was it like when you finally got to make that then, if it, if it was something that you'd been hoping to do for a while, yeah. was that lovely? It was, it was amazing. I was working with Aideen as well again. We did Bye Bye Now with an, an home trip. Uh, we had done that together and... And we just love working together. Like, she's great to work with and we're great friends, you know. So um, it was, I mean, it, the budget was tiny. And so it was frustrating from that point of view. And, like, I think, like, I was at a loss personally just to make it. But I just thought, 
you know, this story is only going to get told once and it's a privilege to be the one telling it and we'll try and do it as well as we can within the budget that we have and and that's what we did. But it was, a, like, it's a pleasure to make something like that. I mean, like phenomenal character, fun scenes, you know, um, poignant moments. Uh, but I suppose, yeah, I suppose it feels a bit, feels a bit more like making <laughs> like if you're making the difference probably between like making like a fun film or making like a really tough you know film about you know social deprivation or something like this was definitely more in like the fun camp you know really enjoyable to make and just in terms of like stories are you are you inundated every day with loads of ideas in terms of what you see or yeah I'm I'm like uh, I get a lot of ideas um, and just I don't know whatever way my brain is programmed like I, I'm very uh, quick to come across ideas but then also like I'm quick to to know whether or not I think it's pursuable and what what dictates that? Um, some of it, like well, I'm looking for film for ideas that for films that will take place over eighty minutes. Say, and you look at it and you think to yourself, okay, like you come across a great idea, and sometimes you say to yourself, well, this is a great idea, but it's it's a twenty five minute idea. It's an instinctive thing, you know. And you, you're like, what are the twists and turns within this story? You know, is this an hour long story, or is this a twenty five minute story, or is this an eighty five minute story? You know, and there's nothing. There is lots of things worse, but it's not great when you are trying to tell a 50 minute story in 85 minutes because it becomes you know inflated and bloated and you actually ruin what would have been a great 50 minute story sometimes when by trying to t- make it in people are obsessed with having feature length documentaries and so am i but like really why you know what i mean like if it's a great hour maybe figure out a way of, of, of making a great hour and, and it will sit well on television then you know so um it's yeah all those things it's you're trying to find stories that that will have enough in them enough intrigue and enough for want of a better twists and turns within the story to for people to stick with it over a longer period and really strong enough strong characters and like if you're making a film and and it's about someone who's a great story but you know they may not be strong enough in terms of how they tell their own story or the people around them that are also helping them tell their story if it's that kind of led by people's voices type of film um, then it just won't work you know so I suppose as you do more of it your brain gets trained to think about those things quite quickly and and what kind of ideas might work and so I tend to come across I, I look I suppose I come across all right my brain works in trying to find like fully formed stories other people like think of themes, you know, or, or like a subject material, like it could be, you know, disco dancing in the 70s, say, and they go like, I am interested in that. And then they go and find the characters within that world, you know, where I'm kind of looking more, I keep an eye for more sort of fully formed stories and find out if there's enough there. And are there projects or stories that you've just had to let go over the years that you've been working on and it just... Um... God, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't really let them go. <laughs> that's a, that's why I'm so broke. Uh, well, like, I'll, you know, there's 
those kind of ones that you come across and well yeah actually there's, there's loads like there's the, mainly the problem I've come across is I haven't like there's an idea I wanted to do something on the World Irish Dancing Championships years ago and I got in touch with them uh, two or three times and actually even I think at the film board at the time I spoke to some of the production executives there and they were loosely interested like we hadn't put in a formal thing but informally they're like oh that sounds interesting you know you know tell us more and um, but I couldn't get access at the time and they kept saying no and then um, but every year I think the chairperson or the, the decision maker would change that was the, the way their committee worked and then one year I didn't ask and then about a year later BBC had done a feature length documentary called Jig which did very well so but then also if you come with the BBC on board then sometimes that changes everything I also had an idea to do something about the last days of the Vietnam War Oh. which I never got up and running and then became Last Days in Vietnam became one of the most successful documentaries of the US box office last year I had an idea to do a film about Irania which is this white enclave in South Africa and then a German filmmaker maker made a lot about a year and a half ago so sometimes it's not that you let it go sometimes someone else just gets there first yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of kind of the amount of projects that you would have on the go at one time yeah is that just a... well, we, well what I've tried to do more recently is um, I want to I'm aspiring to tell stories better and uh, than I have and one of the things I think I need to do that is to spend more time in development with the ideas uh, and it kind of suggests a different approach so if you come across a story try and get access to the story and you try and get the people involved in the story kind of signed up so they say yes we are signed up to you and if we won't do the film with somebody else and then you develop the film you're not in fear then of somebody else going and coming across it and doing it so and it gives you a bit more time to develop them and to find other characters and maybe you do a couple of interviews and you cut a promo and you, you take a slightly slower approach in the hope that in the long run you'll get a chance to tell the story better and so what we're doing or what I'm doing at the moment and with some other colleagues in different situations is develop three or four ideas and then when it comes to the right moment for them to go into full production they'll move into full production so that's kind of the approach at the moment. Um, just jump kind of in a, in a fantasy land if you were head of the Arts Council or Taoiseach or Film Board for the day, right? what would you do to, without being critical, Yeah. Um, but what would you do to kind of maybe enable or strengthen or are there things you'd put in place to help filmmakers? And yeah, well, it's very hard to know really because like obviously uh, unless you're inside the doors or walls an organisation, like I only know really about the Film Board mostly as how it pertains to me, you know, and, and they've been... Uh, very supportive like of me really and uh, of course at times I would like to have had bigger budgets and so on and so forth but at the same time I do feel like I'm making progress you know uh, the biggest thing I think that we as a country could do better um, and I wonder sometimes is it kind of the stage of, of history that we're at is like talent development you know I think still things still feel sometimes a little bit like we're kind of catching up with ourselves you know it's like and it feels like everyone's always so busy you know and I, I, um, 
that they don't have time to think about uh, like I like you know I've been doing this for 10 years now more or less and the I worry about the 25 year olds like if there's a 25 year old out there who is has immense talent and but needs that talent to be developed you know isn't going to make a film straight out of the blocks at 25 and, and is recognized you know is it is a talent that's going to take 10 years to develop like what chance do they have you know and, and i just don't know if they have any chance unless there's an element of like grim brutal determination on their part a couple of lucky breaks meeting the right person at the right party you know and I feel like we could do better than that. You know, I feel like that we could have a more structured approach to talent development. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I would have been talented enough to be part of something like that myself, but like, I would like to think that that's there for the people who, who need it. And that, that you know, if, they, if the right person needs that kind of development, that it would be there for them, that, you know, they would know, that they wouldn't feel that if they fucked up one film, that they'd never get a call again or they'll never get a chance again. And I feel like sometimes it can be a bit like that, you know, if you make a short. You know what, I've seen it. I've never had this experience myself. Thankfully, I've never really screwed one up completely. But the I've seen people have made a short and I've had a film at the same program as them. You know, and once you leave and people go to the bar or, or the, you know, outside for a chat or whatever it is, people will talk generally about mm. the program. There might be eight films. And there's always one that people go like, oh, yeah, that didn't really work. And like, you know, I expected better from those people and la, 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 la. And you're thinking, and like, it struck me as like, particularly in the case of a certain, in fact, there's two or three examples I can think of where like, I know those people are really talented and something went wrong. Now, either maybe they could have benefited from more mentorship during the making of that short film. Uh, I think that's something like when people get commissioned for a short, it seems to be like, here's the money, go and make it. Whereas I think there could be some mentorship or workshopping during the making of the short where more experienced people could say like these are the mistakes I made or these are things I found that benefited me so that if you're in that situation making that short you're like okay well we won't go down that avenue you know so I feel like that's a big thing and, and it feels quite sink or swim sometimes and you're worried that you're going to fall off the cliff and that's going to be it that's like mixed metaphors no. sink or swim <laughs> fall off the cliff <laughs> I suppose you'd have to oh, pull it first, oh, but... Uh, no, that makes sense. That's the big thing. And I, and I think that, that I've seen that within organisations too, like some of the broadcasters and stuff, and you just... You wonder if the people within those organisations, like, are there... Like, if you start an RTE, you know, is there a path? I don't know. I haven't worked in RTE enough to really know they, like, uh, they could be. But, like, is there a path within RTE for them to get the best out of the producers and directors within the organisation? It's a big commitment for an organisation or it's a big commitment for the Arts Council, the film board, but and it, it costs money. But I do think that there's a benefit. Um, mentors along the way or people who have kind of been... Supportive? Yes. Uh, well, the first was Dan O'Hara, uh, my good, close friend, who we were in college doing business together, so it's bizarre how things have panned out. Um, but he now directs a lot of drama series. Like he just did Doctor Who, and okay. he's done. He's doing something else massive now coming up. That I probably can't even tell you about. But anyway, 
uh, it's going well for him but like it was just brilliant to have someone encouraging that had got into it even though we're the same age like a couple of years ahead of me and sometimes he can introduce me to someone or like the first job I got in TV was because someone met him and he wasn't suitable for it but he said you know what I have a friend he hasn't got that much experience but he's got the right skill set for what you're looking for and that was how I got my first like assistant producer job which started like a parallel career that has allowed me to fund both sides of what I do so um then within TV I worked in that job I worked with a really great producer who was um just to learn from um but I wouldn't I don't think I've ever really had like a full mentor you know you just try and learn as you go along and I suppose I read a lot about what I do so I'm picking up stuff as I go along but um yeah, you know, and that's it, really. And was there a point where, uh, like, like when was the first time you said when somebody asked you, what do you do, that you said? <laughs> Probably like last year. <laughs> Not that long ago. Yeah. It's a hard thing. Cause like, it's how, a really how do you know if you're a filmmaker? Like, okay, you've made a film, but like, have you been successful, you know, in making that film as well as it could be made? I mean, the other thing I should say is that I was lucky in terms of career development was around the time we were finished shooting Saviors, the film board, uh, Simon Perry became the head of the film board and he uh, had a policy that he thought that there was an opportunity to put money into feature documentaries, that that would be something worth doing. And I think we were the first film funded under that. And that was pure timing that we happened to be ready to go for an edit, not even having a clue really what we were doing. And the, they had had that policy and we needed we wanted very little money and so like that incarnation of the film board with Simon Perry and then Alan Marr who was a production executive of her documentary kind of kick-started our career okay um but you asked someone else after what was that uh yeah so when did you say oh yeah no, probably am... last year yeah <laughs> well we had Unbreakable and it was released in theaters and loads of people went to see it it was like really successful at the box office and did really well critically and you think like okay I've made two features maybe I am actually a filmmaker now and I bought a house so I was able to pay for that probably not from that money but <laughs> so um, yeah it's my job um, but it is important to be able to well it changes get, you when yeah, you say that yeah, you go like okay well if I am then what kind of filmmaker am I going to be and, and you take how am I going to express that yeah, yeah. Um, why do you do what you do? Well, it's too late for me to do anything else now. <laughs> I think uh, that's. I feel like I can't do anything else now. So that's whatever I'm stuck. But uh, I just love it, you know. And I love the challenge of telling stories. And strange, like by nature, I'm actually fairly shy. Like I've never been the person to introduce myself to a room full of strangers. But uh, I do love people's stories and trying to tell them well. And I've just got uh, embedded into this kind of world. And I'm, and I'm f like endlessly fascinated by what moves people and how to deliver it to them uh, well. Uh, so I'm like fascinated by telling the story, but I'm also fascinated by, because like, we self-distributed Unbreakable. So I'm really fascinated by how people... Uh, how people will intersect with a film like what will make them get leave home when all the other options in the world are open to them 
and go to a cinema on a wet Wednesday night uh, or worse on a sunny Saturday afternoon and buy a ticket and go to a film and I'm really really fascinated by that so like those two things together uh, which you know sit very comfortably together fascinate me and therefore I can't do anything else um, and the best advice you've ever had the best <clears throat> advice I've ever had I don't know really I, mean, I read something recently and I'm really interested in the idea of festivals you know because like festivals is where I formed my interest in film but um, and I loved them and I loved being involved in Stranger Than Fiction like it's such a privilege uh, but I think that festivals have almost become too dominant in the world of film and I don't know how you would have recognised that yet and I read somebody told me like a term recently it's um, God, I can't remember what he said. I think it was like one of the early American presidents. And it was like, uh, the obstacle is the way. And it, it's very hard to get your head around what that even means. Well, at least my head won't fully get around it. But um, the strategy that people have with, fa- with films is like quite time-honored in that like you get your film into the biggest festival you can and you kind of go from there. Unless you have a sales agent and all that kind of stuff in place before. But what if you don't? You know, and I started thinking in terms of, I can't think of the best advice, but the most recent thing I've started to think is like, if one route doesn't work out for you, if there's an obstacle in your way, and maybe that's the fact that your film doesn't really suit those bigger festivals, then maybe that's showing you a different way of going about things. And I'm very interested in the other ways of going about things and realizing that the audience, a lot of the audience, that will go and buy a ticket to go and see a film outside of the festival arena aren't really that concerned about how your film did in a festival or whether it got into certain festivals. They just know that there's something on that they want to see and they want to go and see it. You know, if someone's going to buy a bottle of water, they don't say, like, what festivals did it get into? They just want a bottle of water and they want to go and buy it. So if you think about what you're making in that way, if you want people to see it, you have to think, like, I made this thing. And I know there's a group of people that want to see it. Uh, how can I communicate that to them and, and convince them to come to it? And I think that we need to start, not we need, at least I'm starting to shift my mind in terms of how a film can get to an audience. So in, in a way that it, when something else doesn't work out, it, you kind of have to turn around and see the... I think like in my mind, I'm reconsidering the entire film landscape. I think like I feel like the land, how we look at things is only one of many ways in which we could look at it. And the dominance of festivals is that people think it's the only way to get their film seen by people. And it's a great way. And as I said, I go to film festivals and I've been involved in one and I love them. But increasingly as there are more and more films and as festivals tend to like we program strange and fiction out of other festivals how many other festivals are doing that how many festivals in the second half of the year are looking at the festivals in the first half of the year and handpicking the best films from them so if that's the case then even within the festivals a lot of the same films are being shown in every single city so if you're not one of those say even if it's as many as 500 films, 
you know, there's still probably another like a thousand really good docs worth seeing that are being made a year. At least somebody will want to see them, you know? So you need to kind of like, sorry, I keep saying you. I have started thinking, well, you know, maybe there's another way of looking at this film universe. And what does that mean then practically in a, in a practical way? In a practical way, it means um, thinking about who those people are that want to see your film at an early point thinking about how you're going to make them aware of it. And so let's say, for example, I don't want to give too many of my secrets away. <laughs> no, but like, you know, the simplest way that people do is like they set up a Facebook page. And, mm-hmm. But like, even you have to look at how you do that. Are you doing it in a way that's going to connect with the kind of people that want to see your film? So, you know, it's kind of like thinking about the marketing side of what you're doing to some extent while you're doing it. And, you know, if you've got a film, like this guy made a film by red haired people. Yes. You know? Yeah. And he didn't get into any, I don't even know if he entered any festivals. He's just like, you know what? The people who want to see this is red haired people. <laughs> the people that have gone through this experience in their lives <laughs> and are going to somehow connect with it. So he went about looking at all the ways he could get in touch with red haired people and, and growing that audience. And then he distributed his film to uh, you know in that way and it was like the number one film on iTunes at one and stage there was like a red haired convention yeah, on top he, of that or he, there was a red haired yeah. I think he, he went there with the film and that and like looked at ways of like creating buzz around it and so it's I just think we could be more broad minded I, I see too many films that go to one or two festivals and then they die and people are like oh you know they just didn't quite get that festival thing you know and I'm like that's a little bit weak mm-hmm. you made something generally you spent at least a hundred thousand euro if not something between that and a million euro or two million euro it's too weak for it just to not find the audience in that one way like there has to be other ways so in a way you've kind of come full circle and using your initial marketing degree to a, yeah exactly you know and and um, it's fun yeah. you know it sounds like I'm ranting about it but no, actually no, it the reason it's, it's actually fun to go like to try and find other ways you know and it's it's fun to think well you know there might be another way of doing this and, and maybe I could figure it out you know and so yeah it has I mean I think the fact that I was interested in that back then certainly has fed through to what I'm doing now yeah um, and final thing when you look at all of your films that you've made so far um, they're all amazing. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> but are there are there is is there one that you're kind of like, yeah, I'm really happy with that. Um. Yeah. No, not really. Um. I'm, I like them all. Uh, there's none I don't like. Like it, that's a good thing. Um. It's funny enough. I think God blows my mind is like one of the best things that I've done. I did it with Liam. Um. It just, there was something really raw about it. And I liked the time. And then I think in terms of more like, feel like bye-bye now is like a lot more crafted, you know? So probably like those two shorts in the way that they're different. Well, I suppose what I'm interested in as well is like, I don't, and it's probably like a really bad career decision, but like I want every film to be different. And every time I start a new film, I'm thinking like, what's, I think of the story first and then like what is the best approach for it as opposed to like trying to have an approach and then 
fit everything into my approach, you know? Like certain filmmakers have a signature style, you know, and I don't, that's not me. So like, I think one of the things about me is just trying to bring something different to every film, you know? Um, and so they're quite different. Um, but I'd say, yeah, by by now is probably the most, I suppose, successfully crafted one that had a vision and then followed it. Okay. Uh, Ross, the script, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks you. for having um, me.